promise I'll be quick as I can. The river's looking nice this afternoon for a float. Let's get this back to the start. Okay. Praying like Jesus. We've we've looked at the previous two and I guess it's the it's the final quarter, even though there's only three quarters, so it's the final third. Um, I want you to close your eyes for a moment this morning and begin to think about what it would be like if this was your last week. You only had one week to live. You were leaving the country. You weren't going to see your family or your friends or anyone else again. What message would you want to get across to them? What would be the thing that you would want to say? What would you want to tell them? How would you want to encourage them? How would you want to spend those last moments, those last days, those last hours? Of all the things that Jesus could have done, he chose to have a meal with them and he chose to pray. This was his final hours before he was going to be handed over to the Romans and be crucified. He had a priority, and that priority was prayer. During these last two Sundays, we've looked at the first 19 verses, and we now come to this final part of this, uh, what's called the farewell discourse. And this is the prayer where Jesus prays for all believers, both present and future, the ones that he was there with at that time, and the ones that were going to go all the way through to eternity that would come to know Christ as a result of hearing his word. Jesus prayed for himself. He's prayed for his disciples. And now his priority is to pray for all believers. We've read the passage, so um, we'll keep going. That'll take a bit of time off. This final section of the prayer begins with with a belief and an encouragement to his disciples that they, that they will not fail in their mission that he's left for them. This is 12 men that Jesus had that he'd been with for three years and he was about to leave them. And the future of the church, the future of Christ's mission was, was in the hands of these, these 12, which were soon going to be 11. These 11 people. But... He prays for them and there's this real encouragement that that says, hey, you're going to make it. You're not going to fail. You're going to make it. And the entire tone of this prayer is built on this assumption that after the resurrection, they'll renew their faith and they'll carry on a new ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just previously in verse 17, you read that uh, Jesus had just spoken to them about their mission and he just prayed for his followers that they would be set apart. And he was so confident that as a result of the message of the gospel would be spread. And so he prayed for all these believers and all these future believers as a result. And in verse 21, Jesus then goes on to say that not only do I want them to believe in me, but that all of them may be one. And at this point, the the burden of the prayer switches to unity. The word one is similar to that used by Jeremiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 32. 
And, and the word has a similar meaning to singleness of heart and action. Jesus didn't want a group of believers to be off doing their own thing. He wanted a group that would be unified, that would be through singleness of heart and action together. If they were to remain in the world and be hated, if they were to be protected by the evil one, it wasn't going to come through them being isolated people. It was going to come through them being together, but also being in singleness of heart and action. And this singleness of heart and action was going to flow out of their relationship that they had with Christ, out of that relationship that the Father had with the Son and that would then flow through us. Not only would they face conflict from outside, but they were going to face conflict from within. The addition of new followers was going to create stress in itself. People from different backgrounds and interests will increase diversity and temperaments and there's bound to be friction. And so he makes this special plea that they would be one. The second part of verse 21 shows us that Jesus doesn't want sameness or uniformity. And, he's, and he talks about his relationship with the Father, between the Father and the Son. They're distinct, but they're different. He affirms that whilst they are different, they are distinguishable as still being one person or as being one. The purpose of this unity is to be able to put out into the marketplace a convincing testimony of the revelation of God in Christ and of his love for his disciples. For us, it's a testimony of who Jesus is, that is God revealed, and of his love for mankind. If we, Christ's followers, who are loved by God, are single-minded in heart and action, the world might believe that you, God, in fact sent Christ. None of this would be successful unless the believer experiences this for themselves. Unless they experience God's love and acceptance, they're not going to be able to share that message. What flows out of this relationship and unity is the opportunity to share in Christ's glory, and that is the redemption of, of the human race. Whilst we don't save anyone, God uses us in that process. God uses us in bringing this new creation into being. In verse 24, it relates to the final aspect of, of eternal life, which, which I guess you, that's our ultimate destiny, isn't it? To, to not just to live on this earth, but to spend eternity with Christ. It's the thing that we as believers and followers want most. In this verse, Jesus prays that for all of those who choose to follow him, that that would be the case. Father, I want those who have given, you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The disciples have witnessed his incarnate life. They've, they've witnessed Christ being servant king. They've, risked, they've um, witnessed his humiliation and they're going to witness his humiliation on the cross. And was, this was something that he, has accept, that he accepted voluntarily for their sakes. What he modelled to them 
the whole time that he was with them, he acted out in, in the Last Supper when he took the place of a servant and he washed his disciples' feet. And now on the eve of being glorified, he desires that his disciples to see him as he really is in his earthly glory, his lowly service. And Jesus then finishes this sentence with a further assertion of his pre-existence. Because you love me before the creation of the world. This shows the world that the binding power of the triune God is love. This entire prayer is based on the righteousness of God who will vindicate the Son by glorifying him. This is the only place in the New Testament where this term for God is used. The holiness of God contrasts with the selfishness and the evil of the world that confronts the disciples, that confronts us. Jesus' revelation of God is based on personal knowledge and relationship. And the essence of this relationship lies in the love of God, which Jesus exhibits towards his disciples. His purpose is to perfect his union with them, that they in turn may know the Father. Jesus wants them in that inner fellowship of the triune God. So that's, that's the passage. That's great. What does all that mean? How does that affect me? Does it relate to me in the 21st century? Does it relate to us? Was it something that Jesus just needed to say just to calm his disciples down because he was going to leave them? No, I don't think so. We're, we are the fulfilment of, of that prophetic prayer. We're the believers that have, have come to know God and have come to love him through Christ as a result of hearing the good news, of hearing his message. So what Jesus prayed for his disciples is now true for us. We are the new successors of, of the mission of Jesus. And, and I guess today... The second part is, is I want to encourage you with, with three priorities that have, that have come out of this prayer that have really spoken to me that, um, that we can live for, that um, we can put on our tool belt for living a stronger and healthier and more purposeful, faithful journey. The first one that I want to look at is prayer. The priority of prayer. If we want our lives to be more purposeful, healthy and stronger, then prayer needs to be a central part and a central focus of our life. As I highlighted during the opening minutes, prayer was a priority for Jesus. Not just for Jesus, but for the Jewish race. When Jesus grew up, and, and still so now, the Jews were a praying culture, are a praying culture. They were a praying people. Their sacred writings contained many prayers. Jesus called the temple a house of prayer. Isaiah referred to the temple as a house of prayer. And another ancient Jewish prayer called the, the Kaddish is of particular interest to us as Christians because there is much within that of, of our own Lord's prayer that Jesus may have used when he formulated those words. Let me read part of it to you. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. 
May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole household of Israel, speedily and at a near time. The tradition of every Jew is to pray at sunrise and at sunset, at the third and the ninth hour. This tradition goes back a long way. Both Ezra and Daniel make mention to this tradition of it being attributed to Moses. And whilst we may not be able to lay our hat on it, it's probably a fairly logical assumption that, that Jesus would have been brought up within that culture, that Jesus would have been brought up within those ways of Judaism and, and twice-daily prayers. He regarded the temple preeminently as a house of prayer, as opposed to a house of sacrifice or a house of worship. And he would have attended the local synagogue every Sabbath and joined with other Jews in prayer. But throughout the gospel, Jesus' own practice of prayer is vividly recorded. In Mark's, I'm just going to look at a couple. In Mark's gospel, in 135, we can read that Jesus got up very early whilst it was still dark and he went off to a solitary place to pray. In chapter 6 of the same gospel, Jesus goes off to a mountainside to pray through the evening and into the night. There are, prayer, there are passages through Mark and, and Luke and Matthew that also look at prayer, Jesus going off to a solitary place to play. And in Luke, there are eight further editions of prayer that are not mentioned in any of the other Gospels where Jesus prays. And John's different again because John portrays Jesus as the incarnate Son of God who is absolutely dependent on prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer whose natural response, particularly to situations of crisis and decision, was to seek God alone in prayer. How often in a given week do we seek out God for time alone with him? The 21st century culture is not a culture that promotes reflective stillness and prayer and quiet. In your home, is there time when there is not a TV or a CD or an MP3 or a DVD or a radio or a computer or the internet or PlayStation or Xbox or Nintendo on, where, you are, where it either has your attention or it is just on in the background? I was, brought, I was aware of that in our own family. We, Elizabeth's uh, family live in Sweden and we often would send movies of the kids over and what we've been doing and, or if we've done something to the house, like repainted it or whatever. And so we'd, we'd go around the house and you'd be filming what's been happening. And often when we'd be playing it back and just doing some editing, we would just all of a sudden be aware of the constant noise that was in the house, whether it was the TV on with no one watching it or the radio on with no one really sitting down or listening to it or a CD playing. There was just constant noise. There was, there was always something happening that, that could draw our attention away from maybe where, where God's spirit would want to speak to us. But our ears are in tune to something else. How can we find God or allow him to find us with so much going on around us. We need to bring a culture 
of reflectiveness and stillness into our lives and into our homes. Because if we don't model that to our children, who's going to do it? And then who's going to do it to the generations to come? And that becomes lost. Today's not about me telling you how to pray. That's a whole nother sermon or series or small group studies all by itself. But I will say, read the Gospels and look at Jesus and see what he did. Emulate him. Seek his face. Ask him to show you. Be genuine. Get away from those things that will be a distraction. Get up early. Stay up late. Find a time that works with your body clock where you can meet with him privately in reflective stillness. Seek out other people. Be patient. Keep trying. And eventually you will develop a habit and a culture of prayer that will stay with you for the rest of your life. I know for me, at busy times, other things become a priority, so I have to use my diary. And I actually diary into my day, into my schedule, time with God. So that if something else comes up, and they go, oh, can you see me at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock or 2 o'clock or whatever time? Actually, no, sorry, I can't. I've got another appointment on already. We'll have to reschedule some other time. If I hadn't written it down, I probably would have said, okay, God, well, look, I'll, I'll just find another time later in the day for you. Is that what he wants? I don't think so. The uh, second priority is oneness. If we want our lives to be more purposeful, healthy and strong, then oneness needs to be a central part of our life. And I'm going to take a different slant of oneness and I guess rather than looking at unity, I'm going to talk about oneness in relationship. Many people believe that, I guess that um, if Christians had a more efficient organisational merger, then, then they would believe that, that Christ is, is real. And whilst that might be partly accurate, I think that this prayer goes deeper than, than just that. The oneness that he sought from his followers is, is an organic or a whole relationship. In verse 21 that they all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In a previous chapter, Jesus talks about or pictures this organic relationship or this oneness in the story of the vine and the branches and the gardener. Those who abide in me and I in them will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. There is a relationship between the branches and the vine. You can't have a vine without branches, and you can't have branches without a vine. A vine will only live for a certain amount of time. It needs the branches and the leaves and all that stuff for photosynthesis and everything else biological that I don't know about. Um, and they were both tended by the viticulturalist, which is the 21st century term for gardener. What does this mean for a 21st century citizen? Most people don't care if we go to church. Most people don't care what church we go to. They may recognise the name. 
They may drive past and not even recognise that it's a church. Often if people ask me once I know what I do for a job or for work, they go, oh, what church do you go to? And they'll, they'll either say, is it the one up near the bakery or is it the one over on Melrose Drive? And I'll go, it's the one over on Melrose Drive. Oh, you know, next part of the conversation. That's it. Um, but, so it's not a massive big priority. But they do take notice and they do recognise when someone is having a meaningful relationship with Christ. There is something different about that person. They may not be able to put their finger on it, but they know that something is different. That person may display more patience. They may display the other fruits of the Spirit. Their disposition on life might be much more positive than the average person in that workplace. Their sense of belonging, their their sense of knowing their eternal future. Maybe it's their acceptance of others. Maybe it's not gossiping. Maybe it's not getting angry. But they see something within us that is different, that causes them to have a question mark. Sorry, it should be that way. And if they see these things, it makes it easier for them to believe that Jesus was sent by the Father into this world and that we're receiving our spiritual nourishment so that we can cope better, so that we can get through our day and not have to do it alone and all by ourselves. And then you add to that the unity of the body and corporate worship of a church joining together or multiple churches within a city joining together for that purpose of reflecting his glory. And there is an opportunity to make a huge, lasting, massive impact at a significant level. This oneness in relationship comes from a lifetime of influence and time with God. And if you're not there, that's okay. Because it's a lifelong journey. It's not something that we're going to get like that by just reading a book or taking a pill or talking to someone. It's a process that happens through a daily walk with our God. You've got every day for the rest of your life to get it right, to perfect it. Look at the life of Christ, Paul the Apostle and many other key people in the Bible. They spent time working on their relationship. They never felt that they had attained anything. They thought, no, we've we've got to keep pushing, we've got to keep progressing, we've got to keep moving. And they gave permission for the viticulturalists to to attend to the branches as was necessary. Iron sharpens iron. Spend time with other Christians and people that will encourage you and help you grow in your faith rather than those that are going to tear you down or pull you down. The third priority this morning, the final one, is love. If we want our lives to be more purposeful, healthy and strong, then love needs to be a central part of our life. In John's first epistle, he wrote, My beloved friends, let us continue to love one another since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
This is the kind of love that we are talking about. My dear friends, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. God dwells deeply within us and his love becomes complete in us. Perfect love. There are countless men and women who have had life-changing experiences as a result of the love of God in and through their lives. And here we are. There is nothing better than hearing a testimony or seeing or experiencing God's perfect love firsthand in the lives of others. So Jesus prayed, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Verse 26 of chapter 17. So how does this priority of love work in the 21st century? Well, it begins, obviously, with an inner heart relationship with God, with Christ. Without this relationship, without this personal contact, we'll never see or experience his glory. But once we've got that contact and once we start on the road and we start that journey, we can experience him. We can talk to him and we'll begin to notice the glory of his love relationship that he had with the Father and the love relationship that he has with us. And as we do that, the world around us begins to sense something different in us and about us. Their curiosity begins to be aroused. They want to find out more. They want to come into personal contact with that one that loves us. This this love relationship is not an intellectual relationship. This, This love relationship is not an emotional relationship. But it's a blending of of heart and of mind together. John tells us that Jesus is speaking or seeking after those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus commanded us to love him with heart first, then with mind, soul and strength. This is what Jesus prayed for those who had come to believe him. This was his priority. That we would be one with him in prayer. That we would be one with him in relationship. And that we would be one with him in love. Have you made the connection as to how these three tie together? It's impossible to be one with him in love if we're not in a relationship with him. It's impossible to be one with him in prayer if we're not in a relationship with him. It's impossible to be one with him in relationship if we're not spending time with him in prayer because we get to know him and we begin to love him and that desire to grow in relationship with him goes on and on and on. And that hunger and that passion and that yearning gets deeper and deeper and deeper. This is what he longs for your life and mine. And the great thing is that we can make that choice and make that change right now. We don't need to delay any longer from entering into this glorious relationship. I want to invite you to stand together as we finish in prayer. So let's stand.